Welcome to Through the Line, the Agency Squared podcast with me, Andy Barjuri. In this episode, I'm talking with Thor A. Rain, who runs the Helpful Clinic. And Thor and I are talking about imposter syndrome. You know that feeling where you're not sure if you're good enough or smart enough or quick enough? Can you really deliver on your promises? That self-doubt that I think all of us experience from time to time. That's often associated with imposter syndrome. And the good news is there are positive steps that you can take to help you to understand those feelings and, of course, then deal with them. I'm sure at some stage we all have those feelings of self-doubt and hopefully Thor's advice will help you to overcome that imposter syndrome and keep moving forward with your agency or in your career. I hope that you enjoy the show. Good morning, Thor. How are you doing today? Hey, Andy. I'm actually feeling quite sturdy and buoyant. Thank you. Sturdy and buoyant. What an excellent response to that question. I'm, I'm so pleased you joined me on the show because we're going to talk about an area that I think is really important to very many people working in marketing and communications. And that's the commonly termed uh, imposter syndrome or that feeling of self-doubt and I think that at some point we we all experience that in our professional careers don't we and the way we move forward is how we deal with that. Um, yeah exactly and uh, I really appreciate your the opportunity to speak because I can, I can get on my soapbox and really value the opportunity to talk <laughs> about things like the imposter syndrome because I think there are different ways of thinking about it that are likely to be more effective actually for people who have been dealing with it for a long time They've been reading books or look, listening to YouTube videos or whatever. Often the messaging is very similar on how to deal with the imposter syndrome. So the way I come at it is almost like perpendicular. And it might give the listeners, you know, who are listening to this conversation sort of a different perspective. And, and maybe that, you know, that change that makes the difference. Yeah, I think a fresh perspective is often really valuable, isn't it? But before we get into the, the meat and potatoes of the conversation, let me try and briefly introduce you and you can correct me where I go wrong. So I think you describe yourself as a health activist yes. and a pain and fatigue specialist and a first aid for feelings trainer. I really like that health activist title. Um, but you've been in this space for well over 10 years, helping thousands of people to overcome their personal challenges, whether that's anxiety or stress or fatigue or pain. Uh, and you're doing that through your business, which is called the Helpful Clinic. Yeah. And that's how you provide uh, care for your, I don't know whether you call them patients, perhaps you call them. Uh, There's clients. patients and clients. So yeah. uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. So thank you for picking up on the health activist. The reason why I put it first is because that's kind of my reason that, you know, when I wake up in the morning and uh, sort of plug into my mojo, is that activist attitude to health. Uh, and activists are often, there's, there's an educational level, there's a knowledge transfer, but there's also kind of challenging some of the perceived thinking. So one of the ways that I do that is that I always work with health in three dimensions. So I always work across physical, mental, and social. Okay. And really, you know, sort of actively put myself not in those silos of either it's a mental health issue or it's a physical health issue. And often the social context is just clean forgotten. You know? Yes. Yes. So, um, so in that respect, you know, everything I do boils down to that very essence of activism with health as my focus. Mm, okay. I really like that 3d approach to health there. How did you get into this line of work for what led you down this track? So as with most of the things that we feel really passionate about, there's a personal reference. So in my early 30s, I fell ill pretty much overnight. Um, 
uh, with ME-CFS and fibromyalgia, and then trust I also had complex PTSD. It took me about six or seven years to recover. And one of the earliest sort of insights, one of the earliest change points for me was when I realized that I was practically illiterate when it came to my health and my feelings. Mm, okay. And I'd been working in the city where a high tech company as a project manager. You know, I was like, I'm really clever and intellectual. <laughs> you know, I like reading academic research papers in my spare time, you know, and I realized there's this blind spot where I really knew diddly squat about health and how my body works and how what I think affects my body and what my body is, you know, whether it's nourished and cared for affects how I think and feel. And, you know, it was a really sobering conversation between me and myself and I. <laughs> I imagine most, or not most, but very many professionals that are, you know, very successful in their career. To get to that point, you've probably dismissed your own personal health quite a lot to get there. And, and you know, that blind spot probably isn't unique to you. No, and I think that's that's why I'm so, um, that's why I get the kick out of just continuing this. And that's what kind of feeds my mojo is that you know I'm continuously in conversations and people are and I can see those light bulbs are you know the light you know there's like 100 watt light bulbs that goes up as people realize like oh yeah no I did that yeah yeah so a good example is um is uh, as an entrepreneur who's running a company of like 15 people I was working with him and um because he had stomach problems and so I was asking so so what have you been doing how have you been responding to these symptoms he's like well I take paracetamol three times a day I was like okay which is the kind of recommended dosage and I was like and my question is always is it helpful which is why the helpful clinic is called the helpful Aha. clinic okay I tend to avoid is it good or bad right or wrong you know let's just get down to basics and he sat there for a few minutes I think it was literally two plus minutes where he just really thought about this question and then he said I don't think it makes any difference mm. <laughs> and he had been taking it for three plus years wow okay so actually, by this point, because he was always so busy, he was always, you know, running the company and it was always the next thing. And he was going to deal with this later. And he was kind of limping along in third gear, trying to drive at 70 miles an hour at hard, very high cost to the engine, which was, you know, in this case, yeah. his body. Yeah. And also because relying on paracetamol for all that time, although it is the least was the, the painkiller with the least side effects over that period of time, he was now getting secondary issues like, you know you know, IBS and uh, in terms of absorption levels, stomach lining, you know, lots of sort of repercussions because he hadn't known how to deal with the symptoms when they first arose. Gosh, you know, I bet there are lots of people that are listening to this podcast, either, you know, running an agency or running a a, a marketing team in a, in a blue chip that yeah. I can probably relate to that. And I think, you know, that, that person you described there probably got into that uh, and it became a habit, a feeling of this must exactly. be doing yeah okay. it's like an automatic it's like pavlov's dog you know you ring the bell the dog salivates you know you feel the pain you take the painkiller you know the fact that the painkiller doesn't deliver it's just like you just take it you know next time you know after four hours i'll just take the next lot yeah yeah and i mean when i was working the city so i was working for some microsystems back in the day when that company actually existed <laughs> okay yeah this is a big and, of mine actually <laughs> yeah. oh really oh, oracle <laughs> anyway after they acquired son yeah <laughs> right um yeah, so I remember, you know, so part of what sort of led to my multi-systemic breakdown was that I literally just finished working there after a few years. And, you know, this is in the time we still had liquid launches. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't think anything of that. And I remember, you know, one of the reasons I left the company was when I realized on the train home 
Then I'd had a liquid lunch, you know, I had a whole bottle of white wine. I'd then gone into uh, a board meeting for a project uh, we were doing at the London Stock Exchange. I had delivered my presentation flawlessly. And I was like, there's something so fundamentally wrong here. <laughs> well, I'm also quite impressed if you can deliver a flawless presentation after a bottle of wine. <laughs> but I it's not good for your body. So wrong because the stamina needed to get up to that level of drinking. Yes. And still function. This that was like two or three years of serious training. Yes. Yeah. All the wrong things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But we're not here to talk about um mild alcoholism in the workplace. <laughs> <laughs> well, what this kind of feeds into in terms of the imposter syndrome is actually the context. So I'll be talking about that in a minute. Yeah. Well, well, well let's kick off then with thinking about what actually is imposter syndrome. Because I've loosely defined a few parts there that that feeling of am I good enough? But yeah, how do, you, how do you describe imposter syndrome? Where does that come from, that expression? So the imposter syndrome, I don't actually know the origin story of the phrase. The way it's often talked about is in terms of that sense of phoniness sense of unworthiness sense of one day somebody's going to realize I'm not as clever as I present myself to be or um that's it I don't actually know what I need to do x and therefore I'm not going to do it or if I you know like pitching for a new client or a new account something like that we can rev ourselves up with a lot of willfulness so even sort of becoming overconfident because actually our confidence isn't rooted in a strong sense of foundation. So I'm sure you've seen either yourself and or others, you know, people when we, when we come in and we're overconfident, there's kind of a vibe to it. I think that's, that's adrenaline kicking in. So I'm doing yeah. something here that is out of my comfort zone. Adrenaline exactly. kicks in and translates into, you know, overconfidence or, you know, being boisterous in the office environment, whatever it is. Exactly. And I think overconfidence is just as much of a symptom of imposter syndrome as is underconfidence. Um, I, I, I'm going to let that settle in for a little bit, but I think you're probably yeah. right. <laughs> so where I, so confidence for me has gravitas. Okay. And when you, let's say you're pitching to a new, you know, account or, you know, you a new campaign or something and there are, or you're, you're the client, you've got three agencies coming in to pitch. One is presenting sort of, I think this might be a good idea for your product. The other person is going like, this is going to be the best thing since sliced batch. And then you've got a person that's just standing solidly and go, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I propose. And this is how we're going to show you that you can get results from this approach. And the way the person stands, the, the energy they can communicate, the language they use, and more importantly, their breathing and the tone of voice has gravitas. That's confidence. Yes, I agree. And, and having been the recipient of various pitches over the years, you, I've seen all of those traits. That, that's very common in, in a, a roster of agencies pitching for some work, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, those of us who have been around for a while... <laughs> we can kind of smell that overconfidence and the the reason that's over is like it's it's out or it's not it yes whether it's it's like being overwhelmed or underwhelmed you know funnily enough we don't have the word for whelmed but i'm assuming that's a really nice feeling (laughs) yeah i'd like to be whelmed that sounds i'd like to be whelmed thank you very much so underconfidence or overconfidence they both describe something that isn't the thing itself yes okay and confidence is one of those things that often people that are have got imposter syndrome that shows up in either one of those ways often perceive that confidence is a static thing, that you are either a confident person or not. Mm. 
Whereas coming, if we go into looking at what it actually is, confidence can be affected by whether you're hungry or not, whether you've slept well or not, because there's a physiological component. If you're running on adrenaline, then you're less likely to be connected with all of your strengths and all of your capacity. And therefore that doubt kicks in. So confidence isn't a static thing. Confidence moves and ebbs and flows with what's going on in your day and what's going on within this particular focus. So I am really not that confident when it comes to Instagram. I Give me P, complex PTSD any day of the week and I'm like, I know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. But yeah, so this kind of assumption that we feel fully confident in all areas of our life all the time. Yes. I think there's a misconception. I think there's a belief and beliefs are one of the three aspects of imposter syndrome. It's a belief that trips us up time and time again. Do you think that, um, well, I guess first question is imposter syndrome is quite often attached to women, isn't it? But I don't know whether that's actually fair or accurate these days or or even originally. I think men also suffer from a a lack of confidence in times quite often. So so that's the first thing is, do you see this more as a common trait among women than, than men? And well, I think that to answer the question, sort of we go back to basics and in facts that we have. So infant fact, factual information research shows that um, over 80 percent of people experience imposter syndrome to a significant extent at some point in their lives. OK, so, so that, you know, that's, that's like eight out of 10 people. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like the two, you know. I'm like, they just didn't participate in the survey, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I can't think of one person that I know that is so overconfident or confident in everything that they do that they would never have a feeling of doubt. It just doesn't feel human to me to be like that. Exactly. It's a bit like, you know, the research that showed showed that 93% of families are dysfunctional. And my first reaction was, who are the 7%? (laughs) <laughs> you know it's like let's just get real about the human condition yes so uh the second part is that in terms of imposter syndrome there's there's a difference between something being a syndrome so it's almost like a clinical thing that is really um you just it's affecting you to a significant extent and then a feeling of being an imposter mm-hmm. whereas there's an occasional experience that you check in with you know so that's the only way i can figure out the eight to ten kind of ratio there i got you so the two out of ten have the occasional feeling of insignificance or or lacking of confidence and the eight that do have the syndrome have a regular recurring feeling of i'm not good enough so that isn't stated explicitly in the research but that's the only way that those conclusions or those results make sense to me i I think that makes sense as well and if you boil it down to very simple understanding that makes sense i can follow that train of thought yeah yeah so if we then look at, so we've kind of described how it shows up. It shows up in doubt. It shows up in either overconfidence or underconfidence. It shows up in thoughts like, I don't feel worthy to be here. I'm not good enough. I don't know enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not the right skin color. You know, whatever it is. Uh, there's something about not enoughness around imposter syndrome in some way, shape or form. Okay. That that all makes sense. So I guess that, that leads us nicely on to, well, what do you do about it? Because if you're if you're in that situation where you've got to deliver a big pitch or you're meeting the board and trying to sell a new campaign idea and suddenly the, the doubt creeps in, how, how do you cope with that? How do you manage that, even whether it's a temporary one-off thing or whether it's an ongoing syndrome? What are the steps you can take to get that under control? 
So there's a middle step before you can start to take action. So the middle step is actually sort of zooming in a little bit more detail on imposter syndrome and where to look or how it shows up. Okay. So the first one I've mentioned is beliefs. What am I believing about myself and my own worthiness? And, you know, like, what am I believing about confidence? Am I believing that I should be 100% confident all the time? Or am I believing that the only way to be good project managers, I don't know, everything about, I don't know. Everything. In design or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, the other thing is then about context. And we mentioned that right at the beginning. So context, what I mean by that is that kind of social context that we live in. So I listened to your one of your podcasts, which was with Rax about diversity. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, often people who have some sort of a, an otherness to them, and this is why it was identified first within women who are making it in a very male-dominated uh, workplace, that there's the otherness that often accompanies or is part of the imposter syndrome. And we're used to thinking about diversity in terms of race, gender, sexuality, those kind of things. But there are also other types of otherness. Like if you're the only person in the group who hasn't got kids, or you're the only person in the group that has got kids, then there are some aspects to that sort of intersectionality within the group that don't apply to you. And that kind of otherness, in whatever way it shows up, can just uh, nudge us and, and either through unconscious bias from ourselves and others can then make us have a disadvantage that's right so a feeling of being an outsider basically i'm not quite i don't quite fit here yes yeah if you think about it it's like an alien in new york you know imposter is somebody who imposes themselves into a group to which they don't belong mm-hmm. and so looking at your social context uh can be helpful to just get some facts let's get some information so the fact for example that i'm transgender i'm non-binary i'm from iceland living in the uk you know I've got, you know, and other aspects, you know, of my my personality and how I show up in the world give me lots of otherness. Sometimes I can use it to my advantage, like being Icelandic is often got me into interesting conversations because there just aren't that many of us. And we're seen as a bit of an exotic species. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the fact that my name is Thor and Marvel has decided to, you know, give me free merchandise to <laughs> do their marketing and and creation of of the Thor movies. Even if you put my name into Google, you know, Thor A. Rain, you will get all the links to how to find me, but the images that show up are Chris Hemsworth. Yes. (laughs) And although I quite like the way I look, I don't think on some sort of a a consensus scale, I'm quite as handsome and attractive as, as, as Chris Hemsworth. So I have social advantages in one in some areas and then I have disadvantages in others in being queer in sexuality gender and other aspects you know so it's interesting to understand that my social context makes me an insider in some ways and an outsider in others yes and also makes me interesting as an outsider whereas for example I mean I remember when I was uh, living in Cambridge you know work going out uh, into meetings and things with some colleagues and one was from Canada and they just weren't considered interesting at all. So I actually, you know, she was like, you know, a postgrad, yeah. really interesting person, but she was completely excluded from the conversation because she wasn't from Iceland. Gosh, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, so that yeah, social okay. context as part of the imposter syndrome and keeping it real. I think this is applies also with guys, you know, especially now in terms of toxic masculinity. We're all trying to figure out how can I be non-toxic man? What, how is my masculinity? You know, and going into groups where, you know, there may be people of other genders and then you're trying to be really 
politically correct and woke and then you know and before you know it you're just crying in the toilets you know it's like this is a real thing yeah. anything that makes you other is likely to just nudge that sense of imposter syndrome in some way yeah okay then the third component is your actual skills i think often that is missed out you know if and i think this is where overconfidence often shows up i'm just going to pretend i know everything there is to know about in design you know <laughs> or whatever yeah. You know, have you got um, a reasonably accurate sense of your skill levels? Could it be that in order to do what you aspire to do, you are lacking in actual skills that then will give you that sense of sturdy foundation that will bring down the the feeling of imposter syndrome? I think the, the skills is the easy bit to address, isn't it? If you can analyze and do some reflection on you know where are your strengths and weaknesses and that's a good exercise for everybody in the workplace yeah. anyway what what am i actually good at and what am i not so good at and then i can focus on playing to my strengths that's the easy part the other two bits you've mentioned there are more difficult to tackle aren't they? well I, I just want to put a caveat on that so there's two ways there's looking at what i'm good at and not so good at but looking at the, the actual thing that i'm where my imposter syndrome is heightened what's that situation what's that project what's that client what's that thing and then looking at my skills around that particular experience rather than a more generic generic thing. Mm, okay. The other thing is that often because of our sense of not enoughness, we sometimes underestimate the actual skills we have. So it can be helpful to do the skills audit with somebody else. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So if we are have a feeling of underconfidence, let's focus on InDesign because it's a good one and yeah. everyone will relate to it. Anyone that's tried to use InDesign and hasn't had any you know, training on it or guidance is going to fail. But yeah. uh, that's a different conversation. You know, well, we then, can... you know, then if you recognize that actually one of the reasons I'm feeling imposter syndrome because, you know, in this particular situation is because actually my technical skills uh, you know, I don't feel strong enough. Well, I that's a quick fix. I can do a course. I can do yeah. something about yeah. it. Yeah. And then, uh, and also like looking at the beliefs. Well, do I, you know, it's like, do I have a belief that I need to know in design inside out? Or do I, you know, what's the actual skill level required? So if I'm the agency owner, then my skill level required might be like, I don't know, 60% knowledge level thing. <laughs> If yeah. I'm the InDesign guru within the agency, then my expertise level needs to be probably around 80, 90%. Yes. Notice I'm not saying 100%. Yes. Why? I think anything that's 100%, it just doesn't make sense to me because there will always be some feature. There will always be something that you haven't figured out or, you know, or suddenly somebody new who has never tried this software before figures out a hack that I've never thought of because I read the bloody manual, you know. <laughs> it's like... Thinking yeah. that, you know, well, at least that's for me, one of the ways I keep myself sane is to kind of keep myself at an 80, 90 percent of most experiences. You know? I think that makes perfect sense to me. And it relates quite nicely to something I do outside of work, which is uh, karate training. And yeah. our teacher or sensei always says, even though he's been t um, practicing karate for over 30 years, he can learn something new from a from a, a child that started two yeah. weeks has done something a little bit different and it's helped him so even after 30 years of training he hasn't perfected the art yet and I think that's the same in whatever area of uh, interest you take whether it's work or, or personal exactly so then we start to move towards okay so now that so now that I've done a bit of uh checking this out and I like to talk talk about this process of Sherlocking so get my Sherlock on 
and uh, like investigating things Sherlock exactly it's like yeah. and that curiosity follow the clothes and then there's a red herring and get back you know yeah. and to take time to write things down and get a sense of these three areas excellent um, so then so what so once you've got a sense of these three areas what do you do about it how do you actually then change things up a little bit so that you, you move beyond this feeling of inadequacy doubt whatever we think that, that the definition is yeah so so then so you've got a so you've got kind of the three steps or the three areas you've got a bit of a um and uh, my invitation to anybody doing this is to actually do this with a piece of paper and a pen you know or do it in some software that you actually you know you put some attention and focus into it because getting it outside of your head is actually part of the process so your eyes can see it you can read it I often talk about us getting more departments of your brain involved in the process okay just to the thinking you're using very limited part of you know brain power getting your eyes involved getting your hands involved even also if you speak you say it back to yourself you're getting your voice involved you're getting your ears involved it's like the more of your senses you can involve in the process more brain power you get i mean there's a root it's not quite anatomically accurate but actually it is you know it's quite spot on so often we think oh yeah yeah i've done that because i've thought about it i'm like no <laughs> no you actually need to take some physical action here actually need to do the thing it's like yes. it's like karate so i've done a bit of karate training in tai chi you know watching lots of youtube videos without actually getting into the body stance of these things it's not going to yes. make you anywhere close to the karate kids you know yeah absolutely and i think it's that that old um is adage the right word i think it is you know I, I learn better by doing rather than by telling me so if i'm just telling myself these are the things i need to address it's different yeah. to actually writing it down and physically having some uh some way of documenting what needs to happen what's what needs to change exactly and so, and the, the phrase I always use is like, you don't learn to swim by watching a documentary. You actually yeah. go in the water. Yes, you do. <laughs> and then, uh, so I have a process as part of the first aid for feelings, which is a, a set of methods that I developed when I was ill to help me get through. And then it just kind of sort of snowballed from there and mushroomed. Um, so it's the technique is taken from, is an acronym or, you know, sort of a, a mnemonic rather. ABC and using the medical monomic of uh, um, airways, breathing and circulation. Right, first aid, yeah. Exactly. So the first aid for feelings is awareness, breath and body and choice. Okay. Awareness, breath and body and choice. Okay. Yes. So the awareness is to re recognize, ah, are this, I am, I'm feeling like, uh, you know, the, I've got this imposter feelings. I'm running these thoughts or I'm having that sensation. And it can be like headache can let you know that you're feeling it. It's not always the thought. It could be physical sensations that let you know that you're feeling like, oh, I don't deserve to be here. Or butterflies in your stomach or what, you know, those kind of things. It's not always thinking that lets you know. Yeah, I, I, I always say this is when I, whenever I'm invited to do a speaking gig presentation, I, I know exactly how my body's going to feel in the run up to that event because I've been through this journey so many times. It's that kind of apprehension and nervousness. I can yeah. feel it coming two or three days in advance of the presentation. Um, and that is, you know, that's me, my body telling me, yeah, are you sure you can do this? Yeah. Uh, and that's how I deal with it. And, and now that I can recognize that fact, I can, I can, I have mechanisms for coping with that. Exactly. So awareness is nothing happens before awareness. Yes. So it's actually starting to develop that awareness. And for me, the key to this, the fundamental principles of first aid, which is curiosity and compassion. So to be curious about, ooh, what's going on here? Because feelings are always information. So this yes. is a, one of the fundamental principles. 
Uh, you may have heard the phrase feelings aren't facts, which I agree with. But often what that means is that feelings then get dismissed. The traditional approach to imposter syndrome is to dismiss it, ignore it, move on, just let it go. So, I mean, I've been, I went on my first seminar when I was like 24. So that's a few decades ago. You know, I've been, in, I've been around this block a few times. I have never in my entire life been able to let anything go. No, I, I think we're all a bit like that, aren't we? It, you know, it's... It, things gradually build up on us it's difficult to dismiss every feeling you have exactly and that often I find that when we're trying to let things go actually what we're doing is we're suppressing whereas what I where I found much more helpful is getting curious and actually have a look so what's the information in the feeling so with imposter syndrome the information is the feeling is letting you know that there are some beliefs that are likely to be unhelpful you might want to check your skill levels and you want to check what's the social context. Right. Okay. Yeah. This is starting to make sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So if you bring in the curiosity and kind of go and keep it real, don't ignore the feeling, check it out. You then can gather the data, you can gather the clues and go, I could, I could have a really unhelpful belief about this. Or I need to, or I want to upskill my InDesign skills. We're clearly the topic of today's call. Um, <laughs> And actually, in the social context, I realized I am the only dad in a group of young, you know, young teen who have no kids. Yeah. So they're all talking and behaving like this, whereas I've got twins at home and I slept three hours last night. <laughs> That's a quite a likely scenario for someone running an agency, actually. <laughs> exactly. And so it's like, actually, that social context puts me at a certain disadvantage, puts me at an otherness, certain disadvantage. So how do I either change, you know, we don't meet in the pub or, you know, we change the way we engage. So I feel more included. So I'm addressing the information in my personal syndrome feeling or actually share with people information about my reality. So they don't see me as somebody different to them. Mm. Okay. So that's interesting as well. In terms of that social context is almost engineering it so that, that you break down those not barriers, mm-hmm. but differences or open it up so that people recognize there are differences in the room and that's okay. And that's this is how to deal with that knowledge. Exactly. So it's so the way I like to work with imposter syndrome is really quite practical and really getting sort of to grips with what's the information in the feeling, in the clues of, the, of that feeling, the information that feeling is providing, which if you just keep telling yourself to let it go, or you're just going to go, I'm just going to grit my teeth and our body will do it. <laughs> Not only are you likely to cause yourself some serious stress damage, uh, but also you're missing out on vital information. Because once you work through the information, guess what? The feeling doesn't have to show up. Oh, well, the, it's like, it, you, there's a guiding process for how to deal with the feeling because you've looked at the information, worked out what it is that's causing yeah. that, whether it's a yeah. skill or a belief or the social context, and, and then you can address yeah. it, can't you? So that's exactly. a very practical way of looking at it, you know, rather than just trying to deal with the impact of the feeling i how you actually feel the emotion you're actually breaking it down to look at the cause of it and then you can address it and move on exactly and i think when we so when we don't know how to do that we will go to just working more or rescuing other people or having lots of alcohol or sex or you know gambling you know we you know that discomfort goes somewhere which tends to be unhelpful whereas actually if you work with the information it's like if you if you twist your ankle and you don't pay attention to the information of pain, you're likely to break the ankle yes. if you keep walking. <laughs> as soon as you've taken it, as soon as you've addressed the pain, 
the ankle is healed, you can go out for a you know five mile run, no problem, because you've dealt with the information the pain was provided. So, and feelings that both emotions of physical sensations follow exactly the same principles. So, do you think then that most people that would say they're suffering from imposter syndrome just haven't recognised that what they really need to do is to dig into the feeling and then resolve the issue? What they're actually really doing is coping with it by, as you said, they're drinking or smoking or what whatever their their outlet is. And so they're never exactly. actually going to get to the to resolve this issue. It's probably just going to get worse. It's like the guy in the beginning we talked about who was taking paracetamol like three times a yeah. day. And I think because many, because first of all, the, the literacy isn't there. You know, we're not talking enough about get curious. And sometimes people are like, well, I don't want to spend 12 years in therapy. It's like, you know, sometimes this is a three consultation situation. You know, yeah. I mean, sometimes, yes, we have to talk about your fifth birthday. Sure. But sometimes this is surprisingly easy to uproot and dissolve, uh, you know, and I think people often are really scared of that because oh, they, they, if I start looking, it's just going to be a can of worms and I'll just be in, you know, it'll all go terribly wrong. Yes. In my experience, that's just not the case at all. Yeah, I'd rather cope with it with a couple of pints of beer rather than actually dig into my yeah. feelings. And do you think that's changing, you know, as as we as a society evolve and become more comfortable talking about feelings and emotions? Do you think that people will be better equipped to, to deal with imposter syndrome? Do you think we'll see this uh, as a simple thing to overcome as we progress? I think there's definitely evolution and it's sort of the culture is changing, particularly with people. So I'm in my 50s, particularly with people who are younger, you know, sort of in their 20s and 30s. There's a different emotional or feeling cultural reality going on. Um, so when I, I, I set up the Helpful Clinic, which is a social enterprise back in 2015, and I was very lucky to get a, a, a place on a kind of business development program for social enterprises at the Judge Business School in Cambridge. Oh, fantastic. And and I had to kind of do a do a one week weekend workshop, and then I had to do like a dragon stand pitch and whatever. It was all quite stressful, and I really had to work my own kind of imposter syndrome information to kind of be able to be okay with that. But it was interesting that the guy who had the kind of deciding vote whether I would be you know let in looked at me for a while, and then he said, "So you want to teach Brits about feelings?" <laughs> You know, you're either mad or you really are onto something. <laughs> and it feels like you're onto something, I think. And he was like, I think you're onto something. So I think we'll let you in. And I got, I got onto a 12-month program, which really helped set us up well, you know. Yeah, yeah, really good. I think it's, I think the stiff upper lip is, is cracking. And, you know, and at the time that this podcast, you know, will come out, you know, we recently had the Queen's funeral. And if we think about just the way that whole process has been dealt with, the way, you know, some members of the royal family have shown emotion and feelings and things have been talked about compared to other, let's say, royal bereavements historically. I think uh, we, at least in this country, you know, have come a long way uh, over the last few years. Yeah, I, th I think that the I mean, the, 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 um, the Queen's funeral is a, a very big topic of conversation. But I think the 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 way in which the royal family have conducted themselves and shown that emotion and engaged with their with society and community has been phenomenal, hasn't it? It's a real lesson in in how to be open around something as terrible as a bereavement. Well, if you think about just how many times um, King Charles used the word love in his first speech, you know, that if we compare that to previous, you know, first speeches by by previous royals that rarely would have been shared, you know, so whatever you think about the monarchy, 
his role or whatever you know if we just look at the way feelings are included now in the way that they haven't been yes i think it's a sign of the times and i think it's a sign for the better yeah i agree i agree so it's been a really interesting conversation thank you very much i know that imposter syndrome is one of those things that a lot of marketeers and and business owners come up against as they progress and i think there's some really interesting clues and a nice little toolkit there to help them address some of those feelings that they're experiencing and, and move beyond those challenges. Um, so thank you so much for sharing all of that. If anyone would like to reach out, find out more, get in touch and, and, and uh, you know, find out how you can help them, what's the best way for them to, to connect with you? So the best way is, is probably just to come through the website firstaidforfeelings.com and just send, send an email. Uh, we are on Instagram, firstaidforfeelings as well. I'm very much work in progress on that. Despite your uh, nerves around Instagram, you're on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Me and myself and I, I'm taking myself by the hand and going like, we can do this. We're just doing a little nudge at a time. We've gradually been working on this. <laughs> Good. Uh, or, or on LinkedIn, where I'm also, I've got, you know, a moderate presence. Our Facebook is a little bit as well. So those are the key social media platforms. Okay. But actually just email. And the email actually is Thor A. So because Thor A, you know, Alban is my middle name. Okay at isithelpful.com because is it helpful is my key question to any situation yeah super nice uh, a nice framing question isn't it really Thor, thank you ever so much i have learned a lot i've enjoyed chatting with you and uh yeah good luck with your business your social enterprise and your instagram account (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much and thank you for this opportunity to share my views on the imposter syndrome and how we need it to grow and learn yeah it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you thank you